0: Chapter Sixty two, Part Two of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter Sixty Two Greek Emperors of Nice and Constantinople, Part Two. The danger and scandal of this excommunication subsisted above three years, till the popular clamor was assuaged by time and repentance, till the brethren of Arsenius condemned his inflexible spirit, so repugnant to the unbounded forgiveness of the gospel. The emperor had artfully insinuated, that if he were still rejected at home, he might seek, in the Roman pontiff, a more indulgent judge, but it was far more easy and effectual to find or to place that judge at the head of the Byzantine church. Arsenius was involved in a vague rumour of conspiracy and disaffection. Some irregular steps in his ordination and government were liable to censure. A synod deposed him from the episcopal office, and he was transported, under a guard of soldiers, to a small island of the Propontus. Before his exile he sullenly requested that a strict account might be taken of the treasures of the church, boasted that his sole riches, three pieces of gold, had been earned by transcribing the Psalms continued to assert the freedom of his mind, and denied, with his last breath, the pardon which was implored by the royal sinner. After some delay, Gregory, bishop of Adrianople, was translated to the Byzantine throne, but his authority was found insufficient to support the absolution of the emperor, and Joseph, a reverend monk, was substituted to that important function. This edifying scene was represented in the presence of the Senate and the people, At the end of six years the humble penitent was restored to the communion of the faithful, and humanity will rejoice that a milder treatment of the captive Lascaris was stipulated as a proof of his remorse. But the spirit of Arsenius still survived in a powerful faction of the monks and clergy, who persevered about forty-eight years in an obstinate schism. Their scruples were treated with tenderness and respect by Michael and his son, and the reconciliation of the Arsenites was the serious labor of the church and state in the confidence of fanaticism they had proposed to try their cause by a miracle and when the two papers that contained their own and the adverse cause were cast into the fiery brazier they expected that the catholic verity would be respected by the flames alas the two papers were indiscriminately consumed and this unforeseen accident produced the union of a day and renewed the quarrel of an age the final treaty displayed the victory of the arsenites the clergy abstained during forty days from all ecclesiastical functions, a slight penance was imposed on the laity, the body of Arsinus was deposited in the sanctuary, and in the name of the departed saint, the prince and people were released from the sins of their fathers. The establishment of his family was the motive, or at least the pretense, of the crime of Paleologus, and he was impatient to confirm the succession, by sharing with his eldest son the honours of the purple. Andronicus, afterwards surnamed the Elder, was proclaimed and crowned Emperor of the Romans, in the fifteenth year of his age, and from the first era of a prolix and inglorious reign, he held that August title nine years as the colleague, and fifty as the successor of his father. Michael, himself, had he died in a private station, would have been thought more worthy of the empire, and the assaults of his temporal and spiritual enemies left him few moments to labor for his own fame or the happiness of his subjects. He wrestled from the Franks several of the noblest islands of the archipelago, Lesbos, Chios, and Rhodes. His brother, Constantine, was sent to command in Malvasia and Sparta, and the eastern side of the Moria, from Argos and Napoli to Cape Thinners, was repossessed by the Greeks. This effusion of Christian blood was loudly condemned by the patriarch, and the insolent priest presumed to interpose his fears and scruples between the arms of princes but in the prosecution of these western conquests the countries beyond the hellespont were left naked to the turks and their depredations verified the prophecy of a dying senator that the recovery of constantinople would be the ruin of asia the victories of michael were achieved by his lieutenants his sword rusted in the palace and in the transactions of the emperor with the popes and kings of naples his political acts were stained with cruelty and fraud The Vatican was the most natural refuge of a Latin emperor, who had been driven from his throne, and Pope Urban IV appeared to pity the misfortunes, and vindicate the cause of the fugitive Baldwin. A crusade, with plenary indulgence, was preached by his command against the schismatic Greeks, he excommunicated their allies and adherents, solicited Louis IX in favor of his kinsmen, and demanded a tenth of the ecclesiastical revenues of France and England for the service of the Holy War. The subtle Greek, who watched the rising tempest of the West, attempted to suspend or soothe the hostility of the Pope, by suppliant embassies and respectful letters, but he insinuated that the establishment of peace must prepare the reconciliation and obedience of the Eastern Church. The Roman court could not be deceived by so gross an artifice, and Michael was admonished that the repentance of the son should precede the forgiveness of the father, and that faith, an ambiguous word, was the only basis of friendship and alliance. After a long and affected delay, the approach of danger, and the importunity of Gregory X, compelled him to enter on a more serious negotiation. He alleged the example of the great Vatices, and the Greek clergy, who understood the intentions of their prince, were not alarmed by the first steps of reconciliation and respect. But when he pressed the conclusion of the treaty, they strenuously declared that the Latins, though not in name, were heretics in fact, and that they despised those strangers as the vilest and most despicable portion of the human race. It was the task of the Emperor to persuade, to corrupt, to intimidate the most popular ecclesiastics, to gain the vote of each individual, and alternately to urge the arguments of Christian charity and the public welfare. The texts of the fathers and the arms of the Franks were balanced in the theological and political scale, and without approving the addition to the Nicene Creed, the most moderate were taught to confess, that the two hostile propositions of proceeding from the father by the son, and of proceeding from the father and the son, might be reduced to a safe and Catholic sense. The supremacy of the Pope was a doctrine more easy to conceive, but more painful to acknowledge, Yet Michael represented to his monks and prelates that they might submit to name the Roman bishop as the first of the patriarchs, and that their distance and discretion would guard the liberties of the Eastern Church from the mischievous consequences of the right of appeal. He protested that he would sacrifice his life and empire rather than yield the smallest point of orthodox faith or national independence, and this declaration was sealed and ratified by a golden bull. The patriarch Joseph withdrew to a monastery, to resign or resume his throne, according to the event of the treaty. The letters of union and obedience were subscribed by the emperor, his son Andronicus, and thirty-five archbishops and metropolitans, with their respective synods, and the episcopal list was multiplied by many dioceses, which were annihilated under the yoke of the infidels. An embassy was composed of some trusty ministers and prelates. They embarked for Italy, with rich ornaments and rare perfumes for the altar of St. Peter, and their secret orders authorized and recommended a boundless compliance. They were received in the General Council of Lyon, by Pope Gregory X, at the head of five hundred bishops. He embraced with tears his long-lost and repentant children, accepted the oath of the ambassadors, who abjured the schism in the name of the two emperors, adorned the prelates with ring and mitre, chanted in Greek and Latin the Nicene Creed with the addition of philoch, and rejoiced in the union of the East and West, which had been reserved for his reign. To consummate this pious work, the Byzantine deputies were speedily followed by the Pope's nuncios, and their instruction discloses the policy of the Vatican, which could not be satisfied with the vain title of supremacy. After viewing the temper of the prince and people, they were enjoined to absolve the schismatic clergy, who should subscribe and wear their abjuration and obedience, to establish in all churches the use of the perfect creed, to prepare the entrance of a cardinal legate, with full powers and dignity of his office, and to instruct the emperor in the advantages which he might derive from the temporal protection of the Roman pontiff. But they found a country without a friend, a nation in which the names of Rome and Union were pronounced with abhorrence. The patriarch Joseph was indeed removed, his place was filled by vecus, an ecclesiastic of learning and moderation, and the emperor was still urged by the same motives, to persevere in the same professions. But in his private language Paleologus affected to deplore the pride, and to blame the innovations of the Latins, and while he debased his character by this double hypocrisy, He justified and punished the opposition of his subjects. By the joint suffrage of the new and the ancient Rome, a sentence of excommunication was pronounced against the obstinate schismatics. The censures of the church were executed by the sword of Michael. On the failure of persuasion, he tried the arguments of prison and exile, of whipping and mutilation, those touchstones, says an historian, of cowards and the brave." two greeks still reigned in natolia iperus and thessaly with the appellation of despots they had yielded to the sovereign of constantinople but they rejected the chains of the roman pontiff and supported their refusal by successful arms under their protection the fugitive monks and bishops assembled in hostile synods and retorted the name of heretic with the galling addition of apostate. the prince of trebizond was tempted to assume the forfeit title of emperor and even the latins of negropont thebes athens and the Moria forgot the merits of the convert to join with open or clandestine aid the enemies of palaeologus his favorite generals of his own blood and family successively deserted or betrayed the sacrilegious trust his sister eulogia a niece and two female cousins conspired against him Another niece, Mary, Queen of Bulgaria, negotiated his ruin with the Sultan of Egypt, and, in the public eye, their treason was consecrated as the most sublime virtue. To the Pope's nuncios, who urged the consummation of the work, Palologus exposed a naked recital of all that he had done and suffered for their sake. They were assured that the guilty sectaries of both sexes and every rank had been deprived of their honours, their fortunes, and their liberty, a spreading list of confiscation and punishment, which involved many persons, the dearest to the emperor, or the best deserving of his favour. They were conducted to the prison, to behold four princes of the royal blood chained in the four corners, and shaking their fetters in an agony of grief and rage. Two of these captives were afterwards released, the one by submission, the other by death, but the obstinacy of their two companions was chastised by the loss of their eyes and the Greeks, the least adverse to the Union, deplored that cruel and inauspicious tragedy. Persecutors must expect the hatred of those whom they oppress, but they commonly find some consolation in the testimony of their conscience, the applause of their party, and perhaps the success of their undertaking. But the hypocrisy of Michael, which was prompted only by political motives, must have forced him to hate himself, to despise his followers, and to esteem and envy the rebel champions by whom he was detested and despised. While his violence was abhorred at Constantinople, at Rome his slowness was arraigned, and his sincerity suspected, till at length Pope Martin the Fourth excluded the Greek emperor from the pale of a church, into which he was striving to reduce a schismatic people. No sooner had the tyrant expired than the union was dissolved, and abjured by unanimous consent, The churches were purified, the penitents were reconciled, and his son Andronicus, after weeping the sins and errors of his youth, most piously denied his father the burial of a prince and a Christian. In the distress of the Latins, the walls and towers of Constantinople had fallen to decay. They were restored and fortified by the policy of Michael, who deposited a plenteous store of corn and salt provisions to sustain the siege which he might hourly expect from the resentment of the western powers. Of these, the sovereign of the two Sicilies was the most formidable neighbor, but as long as they were possessed by Manfroy, the bastard of Frederick the Second, his monarchy was the bulwark, rather than the annoyance, of the Eastern Empire. The usurper, though a brave and active prince, was sufficiently employed in the defense of his throne. His prescription, by successive popes, had separated Manfroy from the common cause of the Latins and the forces that might have besieged Constantinople were detained in a crusade against the domestic enemy of Rome. The prize of her adventure, the crown of the two Sicilies, was won and worn by the brother of Saint-Louis, by Charles, Count of Anjou and Provence, who led the chivalry of France on this holy expedition. The disaffection of his Christian subjects compelled Manfroy to enlist a colony of Saracens, whom his father had planted in Apulia, and this odious succour will explain the defiance of the Catholic hero, who rejected all terms of accommodation. Bear this message, said Charles, to the Sultan of Nicora, that God and the sword are umpire between us, and that he shall either send me to paradise, or I will send him to the pit of hell. The armies met, and though I am ignorant of Manfroy's doom in the other world, in this he lost his friends, his kingdom, and his life, in the bloody battle of Benevento. Naples and Sicily were immediately peopled with a warlike race of French nobles, and their aspiring leader embraced the future conquest of Africa, Greece, and Palestine. The most specious reasons might point his first arms against the Byzantine Empire, and Peléologus, diffident of his own strength, repeatedly appealed from the ambition of Charles to the humanity of Saint-Louis, who still preserved a just ascendant over the mind of his ferocious brother. For a while the attention of that brother was confined at home by the invasion of Conradin, the last heir to the imperial house of Swabia, but the hapless boy sunk in the unequal conflict, and his execution on a public scaffold taught the rivals of Charles to tremble for their heads as well as their dominions. A second respite was obtained by the last crusade of Saint-Louis to the African coast, and the double motive of interest and duty urged the king of Naples to assist, with his powers and his presence, the holy enterprise." The death of Saint Louis released him from the importunity of a virtuous censor, the king of Tunis confessed himself the tributary and vassal of the crown of Sicily, and the boldest of the French knights were free to enlist under his banner against the Greek empire. A treaty and a marriage united his interests with the house of Courtenay, his daughter Beatrice was promised to Philip, son and heir of the emperor Baldwin. A pension of six hundred ounces of gold was allowed for his maintenance, and his generous father distributed among his aliens the kingdoms and provinces of the East, reserving only Constantinople, and one day's journey round the city for the imperial domain. In this perilous moment Paleologus was most eager to subscribe the creed, and implore the protection of the Roman pontiff, who assumed, with propriety and weight, the character of an angel of peace, the common father of the Christians by his voice the sword of charles was chained in the scabbard and the greek ambassadors beheld him in the pope's antechamber biting his ivory sceptre in transport of fury and deeply resenting the refusal to enfranchise and consecrate his arms he appears to have respected the disinterested mediation of gregory x But Charles was insensibly disgusted by the pride and partiality of Nicholas III, and his attachment to his kindred, the Ursini family, alienated the most strenuous champion from the service of the Church. The hostile league against the Greeks, of Philip the Latin Emperor, the King of the two Sicilies, and the Republic of Venice, was ripened into execution, and the election of Martin IV, a French pope, gave a sanction to the cause. Of the allies, Philip supplied his name—' Martin, a bull of excommunication, the Venetians, a squadron of forty galleys, and the formidable powers of Charles consisted of forty counts, ten thousand men-at-arms, a numerous body of infantry, and a fleet of more than three hundred ships and transports. A distant day was appointed for assembling this mighty force in the harbour of Brindisi, and a previous attempt was risked with a detachment of three hundred knights, who invaded Albania and besieged the fortress of Belgrade. Their defeat might amuse with a triumph the vanity of Constantinople, but the more sagacious Michael, despairing of his arms, depended on the effects of a conspiracy, on the secret workings of a rat, who gnawed the bowstring of the Sicilian tyrant. Among the prescribed adherents of the house of Swabia, John of Procida forfeited a small island of that name in the Bay of Naples. His birth was noble, but his education was learned, and in the poverty of exile he was relieved by the practice of physic, which he had studied in the school of Salerno. Fortune had left him nothing to lose except life, and to despise life as the first qualification of a rebel. Procida was endowed with the art of negotiation, to enforce his reasons and disguise his motives, and in his various transactions with nations and men, he could persuade each party that he laboured solely for their interest. The new kingdoms of Charles were afflicted by every species of fiscal and military oppression, and the lives and fortunes of his Italian subjects were sacrificed to the greatness of their master, and the licentiousness of his followers. The hatred of Naples was repressed by his presence, but the looser government of his vice-regents excited the contempt, as well as the aversion of the Sicilians the island was roused to a sense of freedom by the eloquence of Procida, and he displayed to every baron his private interest in the common cause. In the confidence of foreign aid, he successively visited the courts of the Greek emperor, and of Peter, king of Aragon, who possessed the maritime countries of Valencia and Catalonia. To the ambitious Peter a crown was presented, which he might justly claim by his marriage with the sister of Manfroy, and by the dying voice of Conradin, who, from the scaffold, had cast a ring to his heir and avenger. Peleologus was easily persuaded to divert his enemy from a foreign war by a rebellion at home, and a Greek subsidy of twenty-five thousand ounces of gold was most profitably applied to arm a Catalan fleet, which sailed under a holy banner to the specious attack of the Saracens of Africa. In the disguise of a monk or beggar, the indefatigable missionary of revolt flew from Constantinople to Rome, and from Sicily to Saragossa. The treaty was sealed with the signet of Pope Nicholas himself, the enemy of Charles, and his deed of gift transferred the fiefs of St. Peter from the house of Anjou to that of Aragon. So widely diffused and so freely circulated, the secret was preserved above two years with impenetrable discretion, and each of the conspirators imbibed the maxim of Peter, who declared that he would cut off his left hand if it were conscious of the intentions of his right. The mine was prepared with deep and dangerous artifice, but it may be questioned whether the instant explosion of Palermo were the effect of accident or design. On the vigil of Easter, a procession of the disarmed citizens visited a church without the walls, and a noble damsel was rudely insulted by a French soldier. The ravisher was instantly punished with death, and if the people was at first scattered by a military force, their numbers and fury prevailed. The conspirators seized the opportunity, the flames spread over the island, and eight thousand French were exterminated in a promiscuous massacre, which has obtained the name of the Sicilian Vespers. From every city the banners of freedom and the church were displayed. The revolt was inspired by the presence or the soul of Prosida and Peter of Aragon, who sailed from the African coast to Palermo, was saluted as the King and Saviour of the Isle. By the rebellion of a people on whom he had so long trampled with impunity, Charles was astonished and confounded, and in the first agony of grief and devotion, he was heard to exclaim, O God, if Thou hast decreed to humble me, grant me at least a gentle and gradual descent from the pinnacle of greatness. His fleet and army, which already filled the seaports of Italy, were hastily recalled from the service of the Grecian War, and the situation of Messina exposed that town to the first storm of his revenge. Feeble in themselves, and yet hopeless, of foreign succour, the citizens would have repented, and submitted on the assurance of full pardon and their ancient privileges. But the pride of the monarch was already rekindled, and the most fervent entreaties of the legate could extort no more than a promise, that he would forgive the remainder, after a chosen list of eight hundred rebels had been yielded to his discretion. The despair of the Messines renewed their courage. Peter of Aragon approached to their relief, and his rival was driven back by the failure of provision and the terrors of the equinox to the Calabrian shore. At the same moment the Catalan admiral, the famous Roger de Loria, swept the channel with an invincible squadron. The French fleet, more numerous in transports than galleys, was either burnt or destroyed, and the same blow assured the independence of Sicily and the safety of the Greek Empire. A few days before his death, the Emperor Michael rejoiced in the fall of an enemy whom he hated and esteemed, and perhaps he might be content with the popular judgment, that had they not been matched with each other, Constantinople and Italy must speedily have obeyed the same master. From this disastrous moment the life of Charles was a series of misfortunes, his capital was insulted, his son was made prisoner, and he sunk into the grave without recovering the Isle of Sicily, which after a war of twenty years was finally severed from the throne of Naples, and transferred, as an independent kingdom, to a younger branch of the house of Aragon. End of section 12.